0: Hi, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Okay, so first, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of my supporters. And my supporters come in more ways than just one. You can be a supporter by just listening to the show, by sharing the podcast on social media, sharing it with your friends and family. You can also support the show by leaving a review on Apple iTunes, on my Facebook page, and even on Stitcher. And you can also support the show by joining the Patreon fan club. I say this time and time again, I wouldn't be anywhere without you. So I just want to say thank you to everyone. But now let's get to why you all join me every single week to hear a terrifying tale of military murder. And today's case is no different than the rest. Today, you will hear a tale about a Navy wife who was killed while her husband was deployed and how it took over four decades for her killer to be brought to justice. Once he was caught, he told a tale that would lead to a gruesome discovery by a mom who trusted this man with her child. Join me today as I tell you the story of Kathleen Doyle and Andrea Bowman. Now, let's dig in. My sources for today's case include various articles in the Allegan News, Lansing State Journal, Holland Sentinel, the Virginian Pilot, the Miami Herald, Fox 17, the Daily Press, Heavy.com, and People Magazine. My main source, however, for the story was the Facebook page titled Found, Andrea M. Bowman. The year 1980 was a deadly year for Navy wives living in Norfolk, Virginia. But it wasn't just all Navy wives who were being targeted. It appeared that it was Navy wives who were home alone because their husbands were away on shore duty or deployed. It all began with 20-year-old Susan Lynn Woodruff. In January of 1980, Susan married a Navy man named Jerry Woodruff, But just as soon as they got married, he got called away in the USS Kennedy to serve a few months in France. Susan stayed behind, and it's unclear to me when, but Susan did move into the Ocean View apartment complex. About a month into living in this new apartment alone, she was found dead in her bathtub. Initially, police officers who were conducting a welfare check believed it was an accidental drowning. But the medical examiner thought otherwise. Upon closer examination, the medical examiner found signs of sexual assault, and her manner of death was ruled a strangulation. Upon hearing that a fellow Navy wife had been murdered in her own apartment, the other wives were appalled. But even more appalling was the discovery that the person who killed her was a fellow Navy sailor who was also her neighbor, a 23-year-old man by the name of Rodney Robinson, Rodney was charged with capital murder, rape, sodomy, and burglary. And for the life of me, I could not find the result of Rodney's case. And really, that's the only information that I could dig up on Susan and her murder. Because really, Susan was only mentioned in the local newspapers as a result of a different Navy wife who would soon be murdered. Of course, spouses were happy when Susan's alleged killer was caught. They felt that they could finally rest easy. But tragedy would strike again. 25-year-old Kathleen O'Brien married a Navy pilot named Stephen Doyle. They lived the married life for less than five months when he was shipped away in the USS Eisenhower in the Indian Ocean. Kathleen was a military brat, so she knew the drill. And although she was sad, she knew that it would all work out. She lived alone with her tabby cat while her husband was away. On September 12th at around noon, after Kathleen's friends had not heard from her for a while, her friends went over to do a welfare check. The friends arrived at Kathleen's house on the 9400 block of Granby Street, and what they find sent chills down their spines. There, in the apartment, is a deceased Kathleen. She had been murdered. They quickly call the police. Even in the days before social media, the spouses club had a way to communicate. And by the end of the day, every single Navy wife was ready to pack up her stuff and leave because two murdered wives in less than a month. That was terrifying. When police questioned Kathleen's friends and her neighbors, the last time that she had been seen alive was on Tuesday at 9.30 p.m. Her body was discovered a little after noon on Thursday The medical examiner determined that she had been dead for at least 24 hours by the time she was discovered. The bedroom where Kathleen was found appeared as if it had been ransacked and a sex assault kit revealed that Kathleen was sexually assaulted. Kathleen had been strangled with a cord and stabbed multiple times with a knife. Kathleen's murder quickly went cold when no clues really surfaced about who could have killed Kathleen. And it wouldn't be until four years later that detectives would get a clue. In 1984, there was a man by the name of Henry Lee Lucas. He was on Texas death row for killing a girl. Now, mind you, before he was on death row in Texas, he served 15 years in a Michigan jail for killing his own mother. That's the type of person that we're dealing with here. Of course, there are times that a person on death row will confess to other crimes because, you know, what the heck? They're dying one way or another. Well, in 1984, Texas detectives sat down with this Henry Lee and he started naming a laundry list of women that he killed. Roughly 600 women. And why only women? Because he hated them. In that list of names that he gave detectives was Kathleen Doyle. Texas reached out to Norfolk, who was very interested in pursuing more information that might lead to solving the Kathleen Doyle cold case. So they hop on over from Virginia to Texas and Henry Lee indicated that he killed Kathleen. Oh, and when he tells them is that he implicates another man by the name of Otis Elwood Toole. So, of course, a confession isn't enough to convict someone. You have to have cooperating evidence. So they obtain hair samples and blood samples to compare it to evidence discovered at Kathleen's house. And lo and behold, it is determined to be a match to the crime scene. So the two men are quickly charged with Kathleen's murder. But just as soon as Norfolk detectives think they're going to be closing the case, it is revealed that Henry Lee was just blowing the cops heads with smoke and he didn't really commit the murder. Of course, the charges were dropped in the 80s. And when Henry Lee was later asked why he lied about Kathleen, his response was that he wanted to make the police look like idiots. And just like that, the trail to find Kathleen's killer went cold. Until decades later, in 2018, when DNA evidence and genealogy would crack this case wide open. We all know that with time, DNA technology has gotten more and more reliable. It's funny because, in my obsession with true crime and reading books about true crime, I've learned that DNA evidence wasn't always a big thing and wasn't always reliable. It was like witch doctor stuff. But with time and improvements in the science, Now, you would be hard-pressed to find a case that had zero DNA evidence. Well, in 2018, the Norfolk detectives went into the cold case files and they dusted off Kathleen's file. A quick comb of the evidence revealed they might have usable evidence that could catch Kathleen's killer after close to 40 years. They find the necessary sample in the form of DNA left behind on Kathleen's bedspread. They send it off to the lab and wait... And wait and wait because you know that it's a waiting game. Through a genealogy program and lab, they are able to develop a family gene pool. And Kathleen's killer appears to be out of Michigan. So the Norfolk detectives reach out to Michigan to see if they can run the DNA. And when they do, ping, 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 they got an exact hit from the Michigan criminal database. A man by the name of Dennis Lee Bowman, what the what? Who's this guy? After years of wondering who killed Kathleen Doyle, the cops now had a picture of the man. In November of 2019, Dennis Bowman was apprehended in Michigan and extradited to Virginia, where he was charged with Kathleen's murder. And it didn't take long for him to confess. Dennis, a 70-year-old man at the time of the arrest, admitted to a murder that he committed when he was only 31 years old. He indicated that he was extremely drunk on the night of the murder and he broke into Kathleen's house using a back bedroom window. According to him, he was going in just to steal. When he found Kathleen in the home, he admitted that he physically assaulted her and then stabbed her. But according to him, he was like, listen, man, when I left, she was still breathing. The cops were stumped, though. What business does a Michigan man have in Virginia back in the 80s when he was basically just a Michigan man and people were less mobile? Well, surprise, surprise. Dennis Bowman was a Navy reservist who happened to be on a two week annual tour in Norfolk, Virginia when he killed Kathleen. Dennis pled guilty to first degree murder and rape. And on June 10th, 2020, Dennis Bowman was sentenced to two life sentences in prison, plus 20 years. The sad part was that decades earlier after Kathleen's murder, Dennis was allowed to terrorize the small Michigan community that he lived in for decades. But wait, wait. It's after Dennis's arrest in November of 2019 for Kathleen's murder that the cops are like, wait a minute, this guy has an adoptive daughter who happened to go missing in 1989? Let's look into that. And they don't have to look too hard because someone else has already been looking for the missing daughter. And it's not someone in the daughter's adoptive family. It's the girl's biological mother a woman by the name of Kathy Turkanian. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru, Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus, which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MamaMargo at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, Body Sup as in Sierra Uniform Papa Papa.com. Add Energy Explosion to your cart and use my code MamaMargo. That's M A M A M A R G O T for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Kathy Turkanian could have been described as a wild teenager of the 70s, but not because she wanted to be. She was kind of a victim of circumstances. She came from a broken home and was adopted by her mother's third husband, who happened to be in the Navy. So she became a military brat. It's not surprising that she was rebellious as a young teen, and she would often run away from home. According to People Magazine, when Kathy was just 14 years old, she worked at a bar. And when that didn't work out, she joined a traveling carnival. Of course, she was in a very vulnerable spot in life. And well, she met a boy. He was 19 years old. And by the time Kathy was 16 years old, she found herself pregnant. It was the 70s. So the young couple did what most would have done under the circumstances back then. They got hitched. They welcomed a beautiful baby girl and they named her Alexis. The couple attempted to play at house, but life is hard. And when it didn't work out, Kathy moved back home. But if things were bad before, they were even worse now. Kathy's mom was very sick with cancer. And not only was she dealing with this illness, but she had four dependent kids living at home. When Kathy returned with a baby under one, Kathy's mom was like, no, 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 girl. You cannot keep this baby. Kathy had nowhere else to go, and she gave in to the pressure. And when Alexis was just nine months old, Kathy made the heart-wrenching decision to give her up for adoption. The way Kathy saw it, Alexis would have a much better life. Kathy convinced herself that she would find the perfect couple, a couple that would love Alexis as their own. Alexis would be the apple of her new parent's eye. She'd have everything she needed and more, Kathy would think about Alexis every day for the rest of her life. But she also had to move on and she was now more determined than ever to get her act straight. Kathy went on to finish high school and even became a registered nurse. In 91, she married a man named Edward and they moved to Gloucester, Massachusetts. Almost 20 years later, Kathy was contacted by social services. Kathy was thrilled. She thought she was finally going to be able to meet Alexis as an adult. Oh my goodness, what would she wear on such a joyous occasion? Kathy called the social worker, but she received different news. They weren't calling her with a contact number or a name. They were calling to let her know that her daughter had been listed as a missing person for the last 20 years. What? Yes, you heard me correctly. They told her that her daughter that she gave for adoption had been a missing person for the last 20 years, since 1989. Alexis, Kathy's daughter, had been reported missing 20 years earlier by her adoptive family. Kathy's heart sank. Kathy wanted more details. Okay, okay, so, so let me help you find her. What's her name? Where was she last seen? But due to the fact that it was a closed adoption the social worker couldn't reveal any details about Alexis's new life after she was adopted. Now, isn't that the craziest, weirdest thing ever? I mean, it's a freaking missing person. Give her the information so she can help you find her. But, you know, the social worker wasn't a complete monster. And the person revealed that Alexis went missing in Michigan and her adoptive father had a criminal history. And the social worker also mentioned that she or he suspected her adoptive dad had something to do with Alexis's disappearance. What in the world? What would you do in a situation like this? Well, Kathy hit the Google search bar. Armed with Alexis's birthday and the state where she went missing, Kathy searched all missing person cases in Michigan and she found what she was looking for a girl by the name of Andrea Bowman. Oh my gosh. And right there, a picture of the 14-year-old girl that she imagined from the moment that she was born. It was 14-year-old Andrea, the girl who went missing in 1989. Through her sleuthing, Kathy discovered that immediately prior to Alexis's disappearance, she had reported to school officials that her adoptive father was sexually abusing her. So when she made this report, Child Protective Services went to the house to investigate. And of course, the adoptive family was like, what? No way. Dennis is a saint. And Dennis even went as far as saying that Andrea had made up the whole thing because she was upset because she recently found out that she was adopted. And with that, Child Protective Services walked away, leaving Andrea and her younger sister in the hands of the Bowman family. Dennis and Brenda Bowman adopted little Alexis when Dennis was still in the military. When they adopted her, they renamed her Andrea and they gave her their last name. When Andrea was much older, the Bowmans welcomed a biological daughter named Vanessa. And Andrea and Vanessa were close. So close, in fact, that when Child Protective Services asked Andrea if she wanted to leave the house, Andrea quickly said no because she didn't want to leave her sister. When Kathy found out about Dennis, she began to hunt for any criminal activity he may have participated in through the years. And when she found his rap sheet, she was convinced, this monster killed my baby. On May 23, 1980, only four months before Kathleen Doyle's murder, while in Grand Haven, Michigan, Dennis accosted a young girl who was riding her bicycle. Get this. This was later revealed at trial, where a girl testifies as follows. And this is from the 58th Judicial District Court transcript. On May 23rd, 1980, a little after 11 a.m., this young girl, probably a teenage girl, I, I don't actually know her age, she was riding her bicycle north on Lakeshore Drive near Kirk Park in Ottawa County. This girl was just minding her business. While she was passing the stretch of road that leads near this Kirk Park, she saw a motorcycle turn onto Lakeshore Drive, heading in the opposite direction of where she was going. There were hardly any other cars on the road at the time. A few minutes went by and the same motorcycle appeared to have done a U-turn or something and now passed her going north. The girl didn't notice anything about the motorcycle the first time it came out of the park. But on the second go around, she noticed that the motorcycle had a homemade wooden black box attached to the rear of his motorcycle. Then the motorcycle went out of sight again and appeared to do another U-turn because now she saw the motorcycle again. Every time the motorcycle went by, she noticed something else. On this last go around, she noticed that he was wearing glasses and a blue helmet. The girl was about one mile from home. Then as she was riding, the motorcycle came up behind her, sped up to be in front of her and forced her off the road. Once her bicycle came to a stop, the man yelled, pull over, get off your bike and start heading towards the woods. The young girl was shocked. She had no idea what was happening, so she just kind of like froze. The man yelled, get off your bike. And the girl didn't move. The man became irate as he took out a gun and shot past the girl's head. He then threatened the girl, saying that he was going to put a hole right through her if she didn't obey him. Now, the girl still did not get off of the bike. She was running through different scenarios in her own head, thinking, How the heck am I gonna get out of this? Then the man continued to yell the same instructions, this time using profanity, and now getting off of his motorcycle and walking towards the girl. And she was trying to reason with him, like, Come on, man, just let me go. And then he shot at her again this time aiming towards her feet and causing her to realize oh crap that's a real gun as the dirt by her feet flew up from the shot just then a car appeared in the distance and the man wielding this gun was distracted by the vehicle so the girl still on her bicycle put her feet on the pedal and she biked like she was trying to be number one on the leaderboard of a Peloton live class circa 2020. As she gained distance between her and the man, she could hear him trying to turn on his motorcycle. Then the girl looked back and saw a truck coming her way. So she made the decision to stop her bike in the middle of the road while waving her arms frantically, forcing the truck to come to a halt. She got off her bike, threw it into the bed of the truck, got in the car, and told the driver to go. As they were driving, she saw the motorcycle drive past a truck at a high rate of speed. Now the truck drove her home where she raced to tell her parents what happened. Her mom quickly called 911 and they must have been nearby because they arrived within minutes. The mom had given a description of the man and when the police were at the girl's house, they asked her to come down to identify a man they had just stopped fitting the exact description she gave her mom. The girl was rightfully shaken as she sat in the back seat of the police car with her mom. As she pulled up to the police cruiser who had this guy standing outside, she saw the man and then looked at her mom, her eyes bulging as she said, Oh my God, that's the man. And just like that, Dennis Bowman was arrested for attempted murder. For these offenses, Dennis was facing life in prison before trial in the attempted murder case. He posted bond. And while he was out on bond, he was permitted to leave the state to perform his Navy Reserve two week summer tour, which he conducted in Norfolk, Virginia. And this was when this monster took the opportunity to kill Kathleen Doyle. Five days after Kathleen's murder, while Dennis was still in Virginia doing his military thing, Dennis didn't appear at one of his court appearances. His attorney citing, quote, he's a member of the U.S. Army and is away on his two week summer camp requirement, end quote. Oh, boy. Insert a, like a head smack emoji right here. First of all, Mr. Defense Attorney, the Army and the Navy are different and it's not called summer camp, huh? although some would argue. <laughs> Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in the detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. According to an article written by Michael Martin of Fox 17, Dennis ended up pleading guilty to assault with intent to commit criminal sexual conduct, and the attempted murder charge was dropped. Of course, when someone pleads guilty, they have to say in their own words why they're guilty. And Dennis told the court, quote, I told her to go into the woods, which was next to the road, with the intent of having forced relations with her. End quote. And on February 2nd, 1981, Dennis was sentenced to five to 10 years in jail. So this is interesting because as the Kathleen Doyle investigation was ongoing, Dennis was sitting in jail serving out a sentence from Michigan from when he tried to basically kidnap and rape this young girl on the side of the road who was on her bicycle. Well, a year before Dennis was released from jail, police charged those other two men who I mentioned earlier with Kathleen's murder. Isn't that isn't that insanity? The thought that someone could be charged with a murder they didn't commit, which I know is just a big deal in the U.S. and probably other countries. As reported by the Virginian pilot in 2003, Kathleen's father wrote an open letter to the Norfolk PD, basically calling them idiots for believing that Lee had committed the murder. It was his impression, meaning Kathleen's father that the Norfolk PD were just eager to believe anything in an effort to clear their books. Well, True Crime Army, I'm not surprised to announce that WWMT reported that in 1985, after serving less than five years, Dennis was released back into society and he would strike again. On March 11th, 1989, Dennis and his wife reported their adoptive daughter, Andrea, as a runaway. And because they were so confident because, according to Dennis, Andrea stole some cash out of his wallet before she left, the cops didn't really search too hard. They just assumed she was a runaway. The crazy part is something super bizarre that occurs only a few blocks from where Dennis lives and works at the time. Now, mind you, a suspect has never been identified in this next story I'm about to tell you. But you think about what I'm about to say and then think about what Dennis eventually does. And you tell me if it doesn't sound like good old Dennis Bowman might have been involved. In the Grand Rapids Press Sunday paper on September 24th, 1989, just a few months after Andrea is reported missing, there was an article that reported that two days prior, so September 22nd, 1989, a six-year-old girl was walking south on 160th Avenue, when she was abducted in plain sight. Immediately before the abduction, the young girl had crossed the street towards 32nd Avenue and there was a a windmill gas station nearby. Well, there was a white male in a reddish truck with a topper with a rear sliding window. And this man approached the little girl and asked her if she wanted to see some puppies. When she got near, he snatched her right off of the road. It was three PM. And according to the gas station owner who was later interviewed, the gas station was hustling and bustling at the time. But no one saw this little girl being snatched into a truck. The man that snatched the little girl took her down the road and officers think that it was near Silver Creek Park in Hamilton. The man then forced the little girl to remove her clothes while he tied her up. But in the process of doing this, the man became spooked. He either thought that he heard people coming or he heard a dog barking and he left the little girl alone in the middle of the woods. The little girl, terrified as all hell, I would imagine, untied herself and ran into the street where a person saw her and scooped her up. Thankfully, it was a good Samaritan and not the same perv or even a different perv. The little girl gave a description of the man. He was a white male between 20 and 40 years old with a mustache and unshaven. He was wearing a green shirt. Now there is a composite picture of the man that she said kidnapped her and I'm going to post that and you tell me who it looks like. But unfortunately, the man that attempted to abduct the little girl was never found. But I find it interesting how close it was to Mr. Dennis Bowman's Not only his house, but his place of employment. It appears that Dennis's criminal record basically goes silent from his prison release in 85-ish until right around the late 90s, when he becomes obsessed with one of his neighbors and begins to do some Russell Williams, Canadian colonel type stuff. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, make sure that you go back and listen to, I believe it's episode three or maybe it's episode two. Well, there was a period in the fall of 97 and winter of 98 that Dennis took to creeping on one of his neighbors, who also happened to be one of his co-workers. Dennis would go to the woman's house and sneak in, cut her blinds, break her door and her windows so he could get a better peep into her house. He did this about twice a week for two months. And wait, he also stole her lingerie. But you know, they could never find this guy in the act. In fact, they weren't sure who was doing it. The cops set up a silent alarm that was set off when good old Dennis was visiting the house uninvited. The cops confront Dennis, and he makes up the most bizarre lie ever. He's like, Listen, what had happened was that I was walking by when I had a serious case of diarrhea. And when I saw the house, I went up to it. I jiggled the front door and voila, it was a miracle. I ran in to use the toilet and that that's all. That was why I was in this house. Well, the cops are like, "Mm, "Okay, buddy, they get a search warrant to search his house. And in his house, they find a go bag with a few suspicious items. You ready? three pry bars to basically break into places, a ton of laced lady undies, a black mask, a case suitable for binoculars, although binoculars were not found, and a short barreled shotgun. Decades later, after Dennis pled guilty to killing Kathleen in 1980, the victim of the house break-ins from 98 spoke out. She recalled that Dennis had a nickname at work, Hack and Scratch, because... Ever the disgusting man that he was, he would hack up a lung and scratch his junk in public while at work. Yuck. Vicki Vanderbrink, the victim of the break-ins in 98, is sure that had police not intervened, she may have become one of Dennis's victims. Dennis was convicted of breaking and entering, but at his sentencing hearing, many from his community spoke out to offer a character reference to Dennis. Of course, he was the best thing since sliced bread. I got my hands on some of these reference letters and I will post them on my blog post. But here are a few snippets that were just too good to not share. And it just goes to show that some people will go out on a limb for people, not really knowing their deepest, darkest secrets. A close friend of Dennis and Brenda Bowman wrote to the judge that they knew the couple for about five and a half years. They met when their daughters were in Girl Scouts together, and Brenda Bowman was the den mother. Their families were close, and Dennis was a highly regarded member of their community. He was, get this, a Sunday school teacher and the vice president of the PTO at the local elementary school. Oh, boy. He was also a part of the Christian Motorcycle Club. Quote, he has proved to me over and over that he is a Christian man with high moral standards and beliefs. My eldest daughter babysits for his daughter frequently, and my younger daughter stays overnight at his home frequently. I trust him implicitly, end quote. Uh, Doesn't it make you sick to read this? Knowing what he did to those women, he, He, well, we'll get to it, okay? This letter goes on to say that his offense, you know, the offense of breaking and entering was probably a mistake. And it was probably either based on innocence or ignorance this person goes on to say quote i believe he thought of the owner of the premises as an acquaintance from work in which case he didn't feel that there would be a problem with his behavior end quote oh my goodness gracious i want to pull my hair out can you believe this nonsense wtf okay i wonder if whoever wrote this letter would be okay with a coworker breaking into their house stealing their underwear cutting their blinds oh oh and by the way this coworker who's doing all this creepy stuff When they go investigate his house, he has all of your stolen underwear, a black mask and a shotgun, just in case. Another church friend, the leader of adult discipline at the church, wrote a letter on Dennis's behalf with nothing but glowing remarks. Of course, he indicated that Dennis was a Sunday school teacher, that he was dependable and he was trustworthy. The person believed that the present crime was a result of poor decision making. Rather than a character defect. I wonder what this guy thinks now that we all know the truth. Of course, Dennis's boss also wrote a letter begging the judge not to give Dennis jail time because he was the best worker he had. Another couple that was close to the Bowmans also wrote, quote, He has been a good husband to Brenda and a very loving father to his daughter, end quote. And well, in a plea for mercy, Dennis wrote his own letter to the judge. He had the audacity to play the dad card when he said, quote, I am the father to two lovely daughters, one 25 and the other eleven, and feel that being a parent is one of the most important and sobering things that a person can undertake. End quote. Dennis mentions all of the groups that he's a part of and the fact that he voluntarily sought counseling after his arrest for this crime he begged for an alternative to jail time, pointing to the good job that he currently held. His counselor also requested an alternate to jail. He just, they kept thinking, jail is not a good deterrent for this guy. Brenda Bowman, Dennis's wife, came out of the woodwork to defend her husband in this case, and she focused on the fact that he was actually getting help. He didn't have a good upbringing, but, you know, he was getting past that, He's very helpful with his wife and the wife goes on to mention one child and also the fact that he has lots of community support from the church, from the schools and all the other organizations that he's a part of. And with that, the judge was like, all right, good. Thank you for all the information. Dennis, you're still getting a year in jail. He's also fined in an effort to fund the repairs to the woman's house. Of course, there's no amount of money that would ever bring back that poor lady's sense of security especially not now that she has learned 20 years later that the man who was stalking her was a two-time murderer at the time. But we'll get there. When Kathy got involved in searching for her daughter, she reached out to the Michigan police and began working with them. So when Dennis's DNA was a match, the 1980 murder of Kathleen, the Michigan police were on it. And so in February 2020, when questioned about Alexis, a.k.a. Andrea, Dennis admitted he killed her, but it wasn't murder. He said that he and then 14-year-old Andrea got into a heated discussion when he hit her and she fell back down the stairs and broke her neck. That same month of February 2020, reporters swarmed Dennis's house. A small trailer-looking house located on the 32nd hundred block of 136th Avenue in Hopkins, Michigan. The reporters were there because police cruisers blocked the roads and set up tents in the back of the Bowman property. Everyone wanted to know what did they find. The Allegan County Police Department later revealed that they found skeletal remains underneath cement in a shallow grave in Dennis's backyard. It was not surprising to later discover that the human remains belonged to none other than his missing 14 year old adopted daughter, Andrea Bowman. The news was sad for Kathy to hear, but she finally got closure. She had dreamt of her baby girl for years and she finally found her. In May of 2020, according to Samantha May of News Channel 3, Dennis was charged with open murder, felony murder, first degree child abuse, and mutilation of a body in relation to Andrea Bowman. Brenda Bowman has not been implicated in Andrea's murder. Kathy is still not done in her fight for her daughter. I personally reached out to Kathy via the Facebook page that she created for Andrea. It's called the Find Andrea M. Bowman page. And Kathy wanted everyone to know that, quote... I love Alexis with all of my heart and soul and the story isn't completely done until that monster is sentenced and I have this nightmare adoption annulled. Then I will change her name back to Alexis and give her a proper burial. Of course i can provide an update on my social media accounts when dennis is sentenced for alexis's murder be sure to follow me on instagram at military murder podcast and on facebook at military true crime and if you're interested in joining the discussions make sure that you follow the facebook discussion group it's at facebook.com groups slash military true crime all right i want to take a minute to acknowledge all of my fan club patrons thank you so much here are my new dotted line supporters. Thank you to Sarah D and Jen S. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. Our newest assistant producer this week is Bridget K, and new associate producers include Thokozile N and Anika H. The show's executive producer is Falcon Thirteen, and the music was created by Tyops. If you want to check out some of my sources, YouTube videos that I found, court documents, be sure to go to my blog post located at MilitaryMurderPodcast.com. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another Military Murder Story next week. I was working on our podcast.